This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The mythical warrior Ajax, hero of the war against Troy, was irate. His dear friend Achilles had been killed on the battlefield just a few hours ago. It only seemed fair that Ajax would inherit Achilles' armor. But another Greek soldier, Odysseus, had claimed it for himself. The insult was too much for Ajax to bear. Even though he knew it was dishonorable, Ajax resolved to attack his fellow Greek soldiers and take the armor for himself. This betrayal was an affront against the gods, but Ajax was too consumed with anger to care. He drew his sword and marched out of the tent and into the battlefield. Ajax could smell the smoke. He could hear the screams of dying men. Surrounded by enemies, Ajax drew his sword and swung. His life depended on killing his rivals. But Ajax was mistaken. His sword didn't cut down his enemies. It cleaved through innocent sheep. It swiped at innocent bystanders. Ajax wasn't on the battlefield at all. He was reliving the past, suffering from what modern doctors might consider a PTSD flashback. From a distance, Ajax's lover, Tecmessa watched his misguided one-man battle, but she didn't lift a finger to stop it because the ancient Greeks didn't believe Ajax had a mental health condition. Tecmessa believed Ajax had been driven insane by the vengeful goddess Athena. And there was nothing Tecmessa could do to help Ajax. Nobody could defy the will of the gods. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
This is the first of four episodes on mental health. For the next four weeks, we're exploring the history of mental health conditions from ancient times to today. We'll examine the ways that medical understanding has changed from diagnosis to treatment and look at how social stigma has influenced mental health care. While some of these stories might seem a bit outlandish, we suggest keeping an open mind. Many of these documented historical experiences aren't that far removed from our current reality. This week, we'll go back to ancient Greece, when doctors believed that the mysterious symptoms of mental health conditions were supernatural. We'll meet Hippocrates, a physician living in 400 BCE. He was one of the first to reject occult explanations and theorize that there might be a biological aspect to mental health conditions. In the next three weeks, we'll follow the doctors who built on Hippocrates' theories in an effort to understand and treat mental health conditions. We'll explore history's first asylums, recount the way schizophrenia was identified, and uncover the relationship between mental health and homelessness today. In 2020, mental health conditions are strikingly common. Roughly one in five Americans will experience a mental illness. But this isn't a new phenomenon. Mental health conditions have been with humanity since the beginning of time. Before we launch into the story, we should note that mental health conditions still aren't well understood today. Modern doctors still don't always know how they're caused. And while some can be managed, the most effective treatments vary from one patient to the next. It can be hard to predict what will work and what won't. Since theories have evolved over time, we're taking a historical look at mental health care. We'll profile doctors and their discoveries to try to gain more insight into a mysterious condition, something one in four people will experience in their lifetime. Researchers from the National Institute of Mental Health believe that conditions like schizophrenia first appeared in the Stone Age. When the closely related species Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred, their descendants had a uniquely shaped skull. It was wider and shorter than their predecessors. A study published in Archives of General Psychiatry suggested that people with wide, short skulls are more likely to develop schizophrenia or other delusional disorders. Schizophrenia is a mental health condition that includes symptoms like hallucinations or a difficulty distinguishing reality from fantasy. And while skull shape may be a risk factor, scientists have dedicated their careers to figuring out schizophrenia's cause. Like any other genetic trait, mental health conditions persisted because they may have been beneficial to those living during the Stone Age. At least, according to author and evolutionary medicine professor Randolph Nessie, who published Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychology in 2019. According to Dr. Nessie, mental health conditions might have saved lives during the hunter-gatherer era. For example, depression might be the subconscious mind's way of communicating that a certain strategy isn't working. It might have motivated a person to move on from a region where food was running low, or to leave a village where they were unlikely to find a mate. But at the same time, conditions like schizophrenia can make a person more likely to engage in risky behavior. 
Researchers aren't entirely sure why, but they think the condition lowers people's inhibitions and impedes their ability to predict negative consequences for their actions. But that was a good thing in an ancient world filled with dangers. People sometimes needed to track their prey into unexplored territory or lead a raid against an enemy tribe. This risk was necessary for survival. In essence, mental health conditions might not have posed challenges to ancient people. They spurred them to try new things and improve their lives. But with the development of agriculture in about 9500 BCE, things changed. People began to form societies with governmental structures. It was no longer helpful to withdraw from the community during depressive periods or to take large risks that potentially violated taboos. Those old evolutionary advantages had become hindrances, and ancient doctors began taking measures to treat what they now saw as an illness. Records suggest that Bronze Age physicians in the Andes Mountains tried to treat mental health conditions with rudimentary brain surgery. Because they discontinued the practice once Europeans arrived, it's hard to say which sorts of symptoms they were trying to treat. But they likely believed the surgery released evil spirits trapped inside a patient's head. To free the spirits, doctors drilled or cut holes into their male patient's skulls. They rarely performed the procedure on women. There's no surviving record as to why, but archaeologists suspect it was considered taboo. What's strange is that brain surgery probably worked, at least in some cases. If a person's malady was caused by fluid buildup around the brain, the holes allowed the liquid to drain out. The patient would recover from the surgery and go on to live a normal life. While Andean surgeons took mental health treatment to the extreme, other cultures across the world used less invasive treatments. But they generally all agreed on one thing, that mental health conditions were supernatural. But that didn't mean those forces were malicious. When the classical Greek era began around 510 BCE, people believed that hallucinations, delusions, and other symptoms of mental health conditions were actually gifts from the gods. If a person heard voices or saw visions, they were regarded as especially wise. In some cases, delusions made a person seem more credible and even earned them great respect. In fact, Greek philosophers believed that people with mental health conditions were the only people capable of creating profound art. Poets, prophets, sculptors, and writers were only capable of their creativity thanks to that so-called madness which came from the gods. In essence, mental health conditions earned people's respect and admiration because they were a creative blessing. Even renowned philosopher Socrates advocated for this theory. He had good reason to feel strongly about mental health because he too heard voices. He claimed that a daimonic sign warned him if he was about to make a mistake. It was an inner voice that would say, don't do that, or stop. And Socrates always heeded it. This daimonic sign was the proverbial angel on his shoulder. Socrates didn't try to hide his auditory hallucinations, nor did he treat them as shameful. They actually helped his reputation. 
Sometimes he even referred to his inner voices as a form of divine madness. In fact, the daimonic sign was a major part of Socrates' defense when he was charged with impiety or disrespecting the gods and corrupting the youth in 399 BCE. During his defense, Socrates argued that he hadn't done anything wrong. If his controversial philosophical views had really been problematic, his daimonic voice would have spoken up, but it was silent. His defense hinged on his assumption that everyone would agree. The daimonic sign was indicative of the god's will. Unfortunately, his judges didn't buy that argument. They found Socrates guilty and sentenced him to death. Oddly, Socrates took the penalty in stride. He argued that this too must be good and divine. Otherwise, the daimonic sign would have warned him and prevented the execution. He went to his death confident that he was acting in the God's will. Ancient Greeks like Socrates believed that disembodied voices were just one way that deities communicated with people. Sometimes they granted visions as well. Pheidippides, who ran the first marathon in 490 BCE, was believed to have had an in-person conversation with a god. Contrary to popular belief, Pheidippides' deadly jog was a lot longer than the traditional 26.2 miles. His run was over 150 miles while he delivered messages back and forth between Athens and Sparta. Based on his reports, the Athenians then dispatched a contingent to the nearby city-state of Marathon. And once again, Pheidippides was right alongside them for the journey. At some point along the 150-mile run, Pheidippides grew discouraged. He'd been racing nonstop for days. He was hungry, tired, and ready to give up. And that's when he saw something inexplicable. A person who had the body of a man, but the legs of a goat. Even through the haze of dehydration and exhaustion, Pheidippides knew he was looking at a deity. Pan, the god of shepherds and wild places. And Pan was not happy. He complained about the worship practices in Pheidippides' hometown of Athens. He felt the Athenians hadn't given him his due. But he'd help them with the coming battle so long as the people gave him the proper devotions afterward. Encouraged by the divine message, Pheidippides got his second wind. He completed his run and, according to some legends, died of exhaustion shortly after reaching his destination. But his prophecy proved true. The Athenians defeated the Persians. Pan and Pheidippides were both celebrated for their roles in the victory, all thanks to a hallucination. Hallucinations were reputable, even admirable, in ancient Greece. But not all mental health conditions were created equal. In fact, people who seemed unusually emotional were shunned. All it took was one angry outburst or panic attack, and their reputation was ruined. It all came down to whether a mental health condition was beneficial or harmful to the rest of society. If a philosopher hears voices and becomes a great teacher, or a writer leaves the family business to create beautiful poetry, or a runner sees a vision that spurs his city on to victory, they're seen as doing something good. They deserve to be celebrated. By contrast, 
If a person is prone to excitability, especially if they're violent, then they were seen as dangerous and needed to be controlled. This applied not only to negative emotions like rage, but also to extreme fear, sadness, or even happiness. See, ancient Greeks equated self-control and morality. Good, upstanding people didn't show their emotions. But if someone was subject to outbursts, that person was seen as morally deficient. It didn't matter if that individual was going through a personal crisis or trying to manage an untreated mental health condition. There were no excuses for the outward display of passionate feelings. People who expressed these emotions openly were scorned and shunned. Customers didn't want to do business with them. So emotional patients dealt with financial instability in addition to their mental health conditions. As a result, they were treated as second-class citizens, and nobody cared to look into where these feelings came from or how these people could be helped. Instead, the mentally ill were left to suffer the consequences. This is one of the earliest examples of a societal double standard regarding mental health. We'll discuss these kinds of inequalities more in future episodes. But for now, the important thing to recognize was that in ancient Greece, mental health conditions could be a blessing or a curse. And there was no way to predict who would receive what. Doctors were nowhere near developing a medical theory for how these conditions were caused. It was easier to write them off as the whims of the gods. The country was due for a change, and a doctor was about to transform the world's understanding of mental health conditions. All it took was a bit more divine intervention. When we return, a literal god teaches the Greeks how to treat mental health conditions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Around 700 BCE, ancient Greeks had two different, contradictory attitudes towards mental health. Delusions, including visual and auditory hallucinations, were considered gifts from the gods. The person who received them was respected and revered. But if those conditions led to emotional or violent outbursts, it could ruin social connections and professional opportunities. That stigma and double standard made life difficult for many people, especially the ordinary citizens who were not revered for their craft. But it never occurred to anyone that they could do something to help their loved ones manage their conditions. The source remained a mystery attributed to the will of the gods. The ancient Greeks just had to live and die untreated. But that all changed thanks to someone named Asclepius. Historians first believed that Asclepius was a real person who lived in the 11th or 12th centuries BCE. But over time, historical accounts blended with mythology. So today, 
All we know about Asclepius are the stories that described him as a god. Asclepius was the son of Coronis, a mortal woman, and Apollo, the god of music and art. Like his father, Asclepius loved wisdom and learning, but he didn't pursue music or painting. He studied the human body, mastering its inner workings and curing diseases. He was such a great physician, Zeus, the king of the gods, grew jealous of his skills and struck Asclepius dead. But this wasn't the end of his career. After death, he became the god of medicine. Temples called Asclepiaea sprung up throughout Greece. By the 600s BCE, they were rather common, with 320 scattered throughout the country. Asclepiaea were more than houses of worship. They were the ancient Greek versions of mental health clinics. Yet each specialized in a different kind of disorder. Some handled physical ailments, injuries, or infections, but most treated mental health conditions. If a person struggled with an illness they couldn't control or manage, they turned to the temple for help. Patients often found them on bucolic hillsides near babbling brooks or in other remote natural areas. The priests of Asclepius believed that peace and beauty could activate the body's natural ability to heal itself. According to the clergy, a person could only be diagnosed and treated if they were pure, in body and in soul. So when a new patient arrived, they were ushered straight to a cold spring. They'd be scrubbed in the cold water, then escorted to a warm bath. Once the patient was physically cleansed, they could speak to a priest about their symptoms. He'd recommend a particular diet, depending on their condition. Then, for several weeks, the patient would stay at the temple and continue to meet with the priest regularly to discuss their evolving feelings. That might sound like an early form of talk therapy, and it's possible the priest's sessions help patients in a similar way. But the devotees didn't see these sessions as a form of treatment. This was all still part of the purification process. They were purging their bad thoughts through conversation. Days or weeks would pass. The patient would stay at the Asclepiaea, eating, sleeping, and meditating, alongside other pilgrims seeking healing. During their residence, they'd receive treatments like leeching or surgery as part of the cleansing ritual. Before a patient could be diagnosed or cured, they were to participate in a closing ceremony which represented the end of the purification process. The priests sacrificed an animal to Asclepius, then prepared the flesh for the patient to eat. The meal was a feast with plenty of alcohol and musical accompaniment. The objective was for the patient to achieve a state of drunken ecstasy. It symbolized transformation, a casting off of their old identity in the same way they cast off sobriety. After the celebration, the patient would fall asleep on the hide of the animal that had been sacrificed. While they slumbered, the high priest entered the chamber. He was dressed like Asclepius and sometimes accompanied by a snake, the god's token animal. The high priest was never involved in the purification process. He never even laid eyes on a patient until this ceremony, but he would still make a diagnosis as the patient slept. He knelt and whispered in the slumbering patient's ear what steps they needed to take to be cured. 
Those recommendations were a closely guarded secret, and today, researchers still don't know exactly what was said. But when the patient awoke, they were free to live their lives. Hopefully, they'd remember the whispers subconsciously and take action to overcome their troubles. According to reports from the time, many people felt they were completely healed as soon as they set foot outside the temple. Surprisingly, these Asclepiaeus ceremonies featured a lot of elements that are still used in psychological treatment today. A modern person checking into a mental health facility might be prescribed a special diet. They'll follow a similar schedule of talk therapy sessions, prayer, and meditation before ever receiving their diagnosis. Except the priests of Asclepius didn't attribute the healing to medical science. They still believed it was the God's will. Nobody tried to figure out how mental health conditions were caused. It wasn't a question anybody even thought to ask. Physicians weren't even convinced there was a biological component to emotions or thought. Philosophers like Socrates believed that the mind and the body were wholly separate. But in the 400s BCE, a doctor named Hippocrates questioned that common knowledge. We know very little about Hippocrates' life, but at some point, he rejected Asclepian teachings and decided that medicine could be explained through science, not religion. He cataloged countless illnesses and offered his theories about what caused them and how to treat them. His curiosity knew no bounds, and he didn't stop with the study of biological illnesses. He was interested in something called the sacred disease, though historians do question his authorship of the treatise on the topic. There's very little information about what the sacred disease was or how many people had it. But Hippocrates provided some hints when he described its symptoms. Each patient's experience was different, but some lost feeling in their extremities, then foamed at the mouth, convulsed, and defecated. Others shouted words involuntarily. Many experienced fevers and hallucinations. Unsurprisingly, most physicians believed the sacred disease came directly from the gods, and it seemed to strike people at random. It didn't matter whether they were good or bad, rich or poor, wise or foolish. The disease was evidence of divine capriciousness, but Hippocrates saw flaws in that argument. First, Hippocrates noted that some of his colleagues, including the priests of Asclepius, were treating the sacred disease through diet and spiritual exercises. Sacred disease patients were warned not to wear black, as the color would attract the attention of death. Allegedly, they cured their condition by ritually purifying themselves and trying to appease the gods. But Hippocrates rejected the notion that the god's will could be thwarted so easily. If a person could be cured of an illness by changing their physical circumstances, that suggested the condition had a physical cause, meaning the sacred disease and other conditions weren't supernatural. Instead, Hippocrates believed the sacred disease could have been hereditary. He recognized that parents and their children sometimes shared these symptoms. He already knew that medical conditions could be inherited, so the sacred disease seemed to fit the profile of a biological ailment. After furthering his research, 
Hippocrates concluded that the sacred disease actually originated in the center of thought, a.k.a. the brain. We can't overstate how much of a game-changer this line of reasoning was, even if it didn't come from Hippocrates himself. During this time, physicians hadn't even fully accepted the idea that thinking occurred in the brain. On the Sacred Disease, a section of the Hippocratic Corpus pioneered the notion that emotions, logic, and reason were all just another biological process, like sleeping, eating, sex, and so on. His students ran with these conclusions. Before Hippocrates died, he established a school in Kos, which produced some of Greece's greatest doctors. Soon, Hippocratic medicine was a major force in ancient Greek healthcare. His emphasis on reason and logic even shapes modern medical research. And some doctors are still trying to solve the mysteries of the sacred disease using the Hippocratic method. Many historians, like the American Academy of Neurology's Dr. George K. York III, believe the sacred disease was actually epilepsy, a condition marked by unprovoked seizures. The symptoms closely match those of the sacred disease. According to the Epilepsy Foundation, before a seizure, people might report numbness or feelings of fear or terror, which may cause them to shout or scream. During the seizure, a person can lose consciousness, hallucinate, thrash around, clench their jaws, or void their bowels. And, just as Hippocrates noted, different people experience seizures differently. We should note that even though epilepsy is definitely not a mental health condition, Hippocrates' findings were a strong foundation for mental health care. He was one of the first doctors to suggest that the mind and the body were connected. We should note here that Hippocrates still didn't have a nuanced understanding of mental health. Instead, he adopted a black-and-white understanding of emotional disorders— Either a person was free of mental health conditions, or their malady had a physical cause in the brain. He didn't recognize how emotional health could play a role in a person's mental state. For example, he attributed many women's mental health conditions to a disorder called hysteria. Hysteria comes from the root word hysteron, the Greek word for uterus or womb. And according to Hippocrates, that's exactly where many mental health conditions came from. He based this on his observation that hysteria was far more common among women than men. Rather than explore social factors, he reasoned that the problem lay in the physical differences between male and female bodies. Hippocrates believed that a woman's womb floated freely in her body. When it was out of place, the womb emitted harmful fumes. These vapors spread throughout the body and caused problems like anxiety, seizures, and irregular menstruation. There were two ways to cure hysteria. Ideally, the woman would just have more sex. If she was single or widowed, she had to find a new husband, fast. And if she was married but didn't want to sleep with her spouse, well, that was her problem. If sex didn't cure the woman's hysteria, she had to undergo an invasive procedure called fumigation. This was a way to smoke out the bad vapors. The afflicted woman had to mix garlic, seal oil, water, and red-hot coals in a pot. 
She'd seal the pot so the steam could only escape through a small hole. Then, with a hollow reed, she'd direct the fumes up her vagina and into her body. Ironically, the treatment worked. Sometimes. The sweet-smelling smoke probably helped women relax, the way an aromatherapy diffuser can help you unwind after a long day. And since a lot of alleged hysteria stemmed from stress, the fumigation offered some much-needed relief. But that didn't mean the procedure was entirely beneficial. Ancient texts suggested that the fumigation process often left patients feeling weak. That's not surprising, because applying steam to the vaginal area can be dangerous to a woman's health. Dr. Vanessa McKay of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists warned that vaginal steaming can kill healthy bacteria, leading to infections. Plus, if the steam is too hot, a woman can be burned in the process. But for ancient Greek people with mental health conditions, Hippocrates' prescriptions were the best option available. His ideas were wildly popular among rationalists who rejected supernatural explanations for illness. Hippocrates' theories particularly resonated with early Christians. They rejected the worship of Asclepius. Instead, they preferred humoral theory, which aimed to restore a biological balance in the body since it was more compatible with their monotheistic beliefs. And once Rome conquered Greece and Christianity became the official religion in 380 CE, the temple hospitals had to shut their doors. People with mental health conditions found themselves cast out to the streets. Coming up, ancient Greek doctors explore whether mental health conditions can be treated. And now, back to the story. In 400 BCE, Greek doctor Hippocrates spun the medical world on its head. He proposed that conditions like epilepsy, anxiety, or depression weren't evidence of supernatural forces. Instead, mental health conditions were diseases or disorders of the mind, just like illnesses that plagued the body. Hippocrates' findings were a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the revelation that mental health conditions could be treated was a necessary first step to finding cures. But his findings also brought stigma to previously respected conditions, like delusions and hallucinations. Suddenly, hearing voices or seeing visions didn't mean a person was wise or holy. Now, mental health conditions caused even more hesitation and suspicion. We just have to look at Socrates' reputation to see how attitudes changed. As we mentioned before, the influential philosopher was known to hear voices. He bragged about this fact. It even added credibility to his teachings. On the Sacred Disease was probably written around 400 BCE, just one year after Socrates died. Roughly five decades later, Socrates' disciple Plato said that he had some reservations about the philosopher's tendency to hear voices. Plato's parents were noble, and his stepfather was a politician. As an adult, he founded a school and trained the best philosophers of his era. Even though he didn't have much official political power, he had a lot of connections which made him influential. 
So nobody called him out on his hypocritical opinion of Socrates. Plato simultaneously argued that Socrates was a wise teacher worthy of study, but also that people who heard voices were dangerous to society and undeserving of respect. In his writings, Plato tried to distinguish between two kinds of mental health conditions. The first were harmful disorders, which Plato called diseases of the soul or mania. These mania included any powerful emotion or passion, addiction, strong sexual desires, and violent impulses. Plato saw people with mania as morally deficient. In contrast, so-called biological diseases like epilepsy didn't imply anything about the patient's value as a person. Unfortunately, Plato didn't clearly explain the difference between mania and biological diseases, perhaps because he had a poor opinion of people with mental health conditions and liked to keep his definitions vague enough that he could condemn anyone he chose. Plato argued that people with mental health conditions were a threat to society. He advocated that they be kept restrained in their homes. He also collaborated with the leading doctors of his day to ensure his recommendations were followed. Again, Plato wasn't a politician or a ruler. He didn't personally have the power to pass discriminatory laws, but his friends did and they listened to the biased information he spread about people with mental health conditions. The practice of restraining people with mental health conditions slowly became the new norm. By the 4th century BCE, the mentally ill were routinely imprisoned in their own residences. Their jailers were their own family members, simply acting in society's best interests. But the truth was, they didn't have much choice in the matter. If they'd let their relative with a mental illness out of their supervision, they could have gotten into legal trouble. Plato's harsh suggestions had evolved into formal penalties, including hefty fines. If a person didn't have family members to care for them, the government might appoint caretakers or have them thrown in jail. And if a patient was caught out in public, people would gather around to throw rocks at them until they retreated back to their home. All thanks to Plato's bias. In the 300s BCE, people with mental health conditions were treated worse than animals. But Plato's student, Aristotle, thought that could change. He wanted to help the mentally ill and believed he could use medication to treat them. Unfortunately, ancient Greek medicine wasn't as advanced as today's. These treatments usually included poisonous plants like hellebore, which were supposed to trigger vomiting. In theory, when a patient purged their stomach contents, they'd also purge their soul of unhealthy or disordered thoughts. Once again, healing was tied to spiritual discipline and religious ritual. But other physicians tried to find more logical cures, like Galen, who lived in the second century CE. By the time he was born, Greece was part of the Roman Empire, but many of the ancient teachings were still prevalent. He built on his predecessor's wisdom, becoming one of the most respected doctors in all of Rome. He was also known to treat numerous emperors. Galen believed that every part of the human body was in sympathy with at least one other part. In other words, 
If one organ or muscle was hurt, a corresponding body part would also show the symptoms of the injury. If one part was doing well, another would appear healthier, and so on. We see evidence of these kinds of sympathies all the time. If you have a poor diet, you might notice your hair or nails getting brittle. Tingling in your fingers and toes might indicate a circulatory problem or a heart condition. The problem in these cases isn't your hair or your fingers, but the symptoms point to a larger issue elsewhere. Galen took the idea of interconnected sympathy and applied it to mental health conditions. He believed that these disorders indicated something was wrong with the brain, and the brain was in sympathy with the stomach. He theorized that if a person felt hungry, the stomach produced harmful vapors. Those gases rose like steam roiling from a teapot and went straight up into the brain. This caused a number of mental health conditions, including those associated with moodiness, recklessness, and learning disabilities. The best way to treat an emotional disorder was to ensure that the patient didn't skip meals. Then, the stomach wouldn't produce those dangerous vapors. Today, we know that Galen's premises were inaccurate, but his treatments may have helped people anyway. Just as Pheidippides' hallucinations had a biological explanation, Galen's students might have been dealing with physical, not mental, conditions. Hunger can trigger mood swings and irritability, while fluctuations in blood sugar might contribute to confusion or an inability to focus. So eating something probably did cure some of his patient's symptoms. This was a huge victory for science-based medical research because Galen proved that mental health conditions could be managed and treated. They weren't tied to the whims of the gods after all. But Galen's work wasn't done. He noticed that some of his patients changed their diets, and yet their disorders didn't improve. It was difficult for Galen to predict why some people benefited from his theories and why others didn't. Science was still struggling to get a good handle on what actually caused mental health conditions or how to treat them. Galen and other doctors sometimes stumbled on treatments via trial and error, but nobody could quite explain why they were effective. Because of this unknown factor, the notions linking mental health conditions and the supernatural hadn't entirely gone away. And as Christianity became more mainstream, it twisted Greek beliefs about divine madness into evidence of satanic influence. After all, if mental health conditions came from pagan gods, they had to be unholy, demonic even. Priests argued that the only way to treat hallucinations, mood disorders, epilepsy, or other mental health conditions was to perform an exorcism. During this process, Demons were cast out in elaborate and exhausting multi-day ceremonies. The practices were deeply harmful. As neurologist Dr. Stephen Novella explained, the primary goal of therapy is to reorient the patient to reality. Telling a patient who is struggling that maybe they're possessed by a demon is the worst thing you can do. It's only distracting them from what the real problem is. Except exorcists didn't know what the real problem was, so they resorted to what aligned most with their beliefs. 
Sometimes the rituals got extreme, and priests would restrain these allegedly possessed people, starve them, or burn them in an effort to drive out the demon. And if anyone ever wondered how their friend or family member had become possessed in the first place, they'd blame witches. In 1486 CE, Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Sprenger wrote The Malleus Maleficarum, a guidebook to help ordinary people identify and defend against black magic. The book echoed Hippocrates' earlier theories. Sprenger and Kramer asserted that uteruses emitted evil. Menstrual blood was venomous, and anyone who touched it was at risk of satanic influence. Kramer and Sprenger went on to describe the sorts of illnesses the uterus could cause. Hysteria, convulsions, loss of consciousness, and hallucinations. Witchcraft sounded a lot like the sacred disease, but there was nothing sacred about it. In fact, the Malleus Maleficarum alleged that women were more likely than men to become witches thanks to the uterine influence. Midwives and other women who studied reproductive health were particularly suspicious. So were people who had seizures, which were now considered a symptom of witchcraft. Countless people were accused of black magic in the Dark Ages. Many of them were tortured to death or burned alive. Sadly, people with delusional disorders frequently hallucinated Satan or demons, which might have been due to their own environment and preconceived beliefs. But they were killed when they sought help. Ironically, medieval people acknowledged that mental health conditions existed, but they thought they came from the devil. So even if someone could demonstrate that they'd given a false confession due to an altered mental state, they might still be convicted for consorting with demons. For hundreds of years, emotional disorders were synonymous with death and destruction. All because doctors were trying to treat a mental health condition they didn't understand. Until the 1700s, when the era of enlightenment began, bold new thinkers rejected superstition and religion as ways to explain the way the world worked. Doctors tried to apply their reason and logic to solve life's problems. They still didn't know all the answers, and they didn't know how mental health conditions were caused, but they were willing to try and figure it out. As the years passed, exorcisms became less frequent. But physicians weren't sure what to replace them with. There wasn't much data on how mental health conditions could actually be treated or cured. With no solution on the horizon, people with mental health conditions were kept out of sight and out of mind. The late 17th century marked the beginning of the asylum era in mental health care. Anyone with delusions, self-harm, depression, or any other inexplicable symptoms would be locked away. And the care they received could better be described as torture. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll look at the era of asylums and explore how a medical understanding of mental health conditions continued to evolve. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>